wake up, find yourself in your bedroom, as you normally do. It is the morning, and it is time to get up and get ready for work. You get up, you put on your clothes, you grab your bag, and you head out to the bus where you're going to take all the way into downtown to your boring office job. While you are on the bus, you look around, see that no one is paying attention to you, and you decide to put on your headphones where you start listening to an episode of Cinema Duel, the podcast. But you notice that something is wrong. Roll for perception. Cinema Duel, a podcast where normally my friend Chris and myself, John, talk about a couple of movies around a theme of our choice. However, Chris is not here today, and so instead I've invited my friend Eric to uh, come back to the show, and this time we are going to talk about Dungeons and Dragons of all kinds. How are you today, Eric, sir? I am doing uh, relatively well for a guy who had two neck surgeries uh, six weeks ago. You know what? It's funny because the reason for, I mean, obviously we were going to have you back at some point, but uh, specifically with Chris having uh, coming down, unfortunately, with some uh, COVID, uh, we decided to bring you back uh, as uh, to do an emergency Dungeons and Dragons episode. And I'm now realizing, of course, that you have recently had major surgery and I myself today am also kind of sick. So, uh, you know, <coughs> there, there's plans. no escaping it. Yeah. No, um, I do apologize for those that have heard me before. My voice is a little rougher. Um, uh, having neck surgery, they tend to do some terrible things to your throat in the process and my body is being slow to recover. So, and my mouth is full of halls right now. So, you know, we're, yeah, we're doing the we best go. we can. We we're a match set here, just a perfect pair. Uh, but we are not as perfect a pair as the, the pair in our first movie. With uh, Justin Whalen and Marlon Wayans. Do you want to start off with this, or do you want to do any sort of like intro, like D and D stuff before we get into it? Well, okay, I'm a nerd about D and D, and and I've gotten really into the history of it. And this is not the first. Well, it's the first Dungeons and Dragons movie to reach completion, but in 1982, uh, Gary Gygax had had tried to get a movie made and tried for several years. And that eventually some of the ideas from that film eventually ended up in the cartoon series, but the movie, the script has recently uh, been acquired by someone who is a major collector and historian. And, um, well, boy, would that have been a crappy movie? Um, it really had nothing to do with D and D uh, there was one fight scene in the movie, and um, yeah, it was a terrible, terrible script that that he was trying to put to foist off. It, it, it's a worse script than what D- Dungeons and Dragons two thousand has. So, be glad that was not that was not made nineteen eighty two and and used up all of the goodwill and collateral, and it probably would hit right. It was. It was written while the Satanic Panic was was winding was 
uh, escalating. So he really wanted to make sure there were no demons in it. There was it was very wholesome. It was like people from our world went over to the other world, but then like because one of them was the savior, but they didn't really do anything. They just went and met like the GM's NPCs who took care of everything from scene to scene to scene. Um, it's it, the the descriptions are truly truly dire, um, and. You know, the cartoon is what it is. Um, I loved it as a kid. I tried watching it as an adult and decided that I loved it as a kid. Um, I don't know if you've ever watched the cartoon, John. I think I saw the one. There's Recently, there's been one screen cap uh, I've seen going or floating around the internet about, like... Uh, I think it was like some cute five-headed dragon or something that, there, that ended up being like Tiamat or something. Like, yeah. That which is i suppose confusingly delightful but not enough for me to actually want to go back and watch it yeah I, it, it's really weird and the more you think about it the the weirder it gets and the um uh pardon my french but the more fucked up it gets there isn't like a, a better word for it like that is truly <laughs> the right word it, it, it's kind of like there's this deity that's not allowed to uh, interfere directly in the world so he brings people brings champions over and over again whenever he needs champions he brings them from a world and sets them up against you know the the forces of evil but it's kind of implied that he he's done this a whole bunch so there's like hundreds of or maybe thousands of like dead adventurers from other worlds that have like wandered in it's it's weird. The more you think about it, it's just weird. Yeah, I think we'll wrap up the history there. They tried to make a movie. It was a dire script. Some of the ideas made it into the TV show. And then it was kind of a property nobody wanted for a long time because it was, you know, in the 90s, D&D was old. It seemed old. And um, after it was sold to Wizards of the Coast, this movie was already... The rights have been sold years before. Uh, I think this was already in production. Um, but yeah, they made a movie and it, they called it Dungeons and Dragons. And that's pretty much how much it has in common with the game. I'd liked your, I liked your comment about D&D being old in the 90s. Because <clears throat> the only time I ever heard of D&D uh, prior to... I guess technically, like the the two thousand movie, I only saw for the first time today, uh, and uh, but but before that, the only time I had ever heard of it was I was on a camping trip in northern Saskatchewan in the mid nineties, and the person who was leading the trip was this pastor out of Saskatoon who was talking about how he convinced some wayward teen to throw all of his D and D books into a fire for Jesus, and I didn't know what D and D was, so I was like, I I kind of didn't really know how to respond to that i was like oh okay and then many decades later realizing that that had actually been like only a few years removed from a huge satanic panic that hit the town that we had been based out of uh like a few just only a few years beforehand so it wasn't just that this guy had this weird DD thing but that he was like very much remembering the aftershocks and of course canada is always you know 10 years behind on anything in the states so right well, that's isn't that the is that the Brotherhood of the Ram stuff? That is exactly the Brotherhood right. of the Ram. 
which I know of because uh, Shooting Guns named one of their albums that. And so then I looked it up and read the stories and was like, oh. But yeah, why don't we, uh, why don't we, we've, we've definitely f- uh, foregrounded what we're going to be talking about today. So why don't we talk about the 2000 film Dungeons and Dragons? Dragons 2000. I mean, we're, we're, I'm going to call it that. It's just Dungeons and Dragons. There's no anything else, but we're going to refer to it as D&D 2000 because yeah. much like Dracula 2000, it's terrible. Um, <laughs> is should that be a rule as if a movie has the title uh, the the uh, the name 2000 in it in the name that it should yeah. just automatically terrible? It, from from my experience so far, it's 2 for 2. D&D 2000 is a fantasy movie where Jeremy Irons needs a MacGuffin in order to uh, put Thora Birch in her place, according to him. Not according to me. That That's rude. Um, and then a bunch of incompetent people get involved and somehow uh, manage to steal the MacGuffin, lose the MacGuffin, have a big fight for the MacGuffin, and still manage not to make me care. Um, is that a pretty good summation of the film? Oh, absolutely. Um, my my first thought, like, as the opening narration sort of establishes a setting, my first thought is, this feels... For like for being a movie in 2000 like they're trying to throw back to like fantasy movies from like 20 30 years ago which i'm kind of like okay that's kind of interesting because that's uh because this movie i mean probably the craziest thing for me is that this movie was released by new line one year before they did lord of the rings like right. where they like potentially like modernized and perfected the fantasy genre for the current like for the uh for the modern era, but before they did that, they pulled, put this piece of shit out, which first of all, feels like it's trying to evoke seventies and eighties fantasy films, which I think is like, well, that could be interesting. Cause that wasn't a thing that was in vogue at the time. Uh, but very quickly, uh, what this movie becomes is what if you drew, what if you did star Wars in a fantasy setting instead of, uh, science fiction? Like I could pretty much with like I could I actually took notes about like who all the characters are like their equivalents of like Justin Whalen, uh, the person we mentioned as being a person we all know and remember from that Superman show. And and I definitely didn't have to look that up. Uh, he's Luke Skywalker. If he was more like Han Solo, uh, the dwarf is Chewbacca. If Chewbacca was gross and sexist, uh, uh, the, the apprentice is Leia. Uh, Jeremy Irons is Tarkin. Uh, um, Damodar is Darth Vader. Um, and then there's so many scenes that are specifically just like, like we're just literally tracing the outlines of star Wars and changing some mild facts to make it slightly less obvious. Well, I mean, I think the first hint is that uh, Justin Whalen as Ridley Freeborn is dressed exactly like Han Solo, mm-hmm. um, including high-waisted pants, multiple belts with swords and uh, 
and uh, daggers on his hip and a little vest and um, sort of had that um, the uh, the mummy haircut that everybody okay like, yeah I, like yeah it, the Brendan a, Fraser yeah yeah there's some there's somewhere in between like they're trying to like capture some mummy vibes while telling uh, you know the hero's journey Star Warsy thing. Um, you forgot to mention that Marlon Wayans is also Jar Jar, which kind of throws off your I thing okay. A little so th- bit. thank you because my because when I was trying to figure out like what like what is like wh- who is Marlon Wayans uh, in this comparison, and my first thought was like whatever bits of Han Solo are left over after you give most of it to Justin Whalen, that's the leftover bits is Marlon Wayans. But I also wrote down Marlon Wayans is also Jar Jar. Oh, Marlon Wayans perform. I don't know whose choice. Um, I'm not going to presume that it was Marlon or it was it was probably the director, uh, Courtney Solomon. But the choice to make Marlon Wayans basically into a step and fetch it character. Boy, that aged poorly is so terrible. It's it's offensively terrible. And like, given what happened to Ahmed Best, I don't necessarily want to make any prescriptions about what should happen to Marlon Wayans. But like that, that like it was, it was rugged. And you and the, you bring up Jar Jar and the prequels. I I should say that the Thora Birch, who is like also barely in this movie, but like the barest subplot that she gets is like when she faces off against Jeremy Irons. Jeremy Irons turns into Palpatine from the prequels, where it's and Thora Birch is Padme because it's a lot right. of like court drama, court political drama happening there. And th- because this does come out in two thousand, uh, I have to admit, I have to believe that like. Okay, they they took Star Wars and then they're like, okay, well we have to have some like prequel energy. Uh and and there's some parts of it that feel distinctly like prequels. Yeah, I I, I don't know if that was coincidence or not cuz it would have been shooting before Star Wars came out, I believe. Um but the real the real issue is that Thor Birch is playing Padmé as if the young kid that played Anakin was Padme. Like she is so incredible. Like I watched the prequels again recently and we're not going to go on a big Star Wars tangent, I promise. But yeah, young Jake is, is tough, but Thora Birch is a hundred times worse in this movie. She is lost. She is like, there are times where like you look like she's, it just looks like she's going to cry at any point because she just seems completely lost in the situation. And it's only like a year or two before ghost world. Yeah. I was just going to say like, we took, we did ghost world a few episodes back and she's like, great. She's completely captivating. Uh, and mesmer, like in, in a, and it has, it has a very clear sense of that character. Um, but yeah, in, in, in this movie, Thor Birch is not nearly as, I guess, yeah. inspired. Well, and and the big, there are two reasons to watch this movie, and only two reasons. Jeremy Irons is having a blast. He he is just chewing the scenery. It's clear he has no idea what he's talking about, and he's just blustering his way through, just lines that are gobbledygook. And Richard O'Brien as the leader of the Thieves Guild. And Richard O'Brien, for those of you who may not, that name may not ring a bell. He is, um, he's the time warp guy from from Rocky Horror. He's the the assistant, the butler. 
um, you know, who then ends up, well, I'm not going to spoil Rocky Horror for you. So, but anyways, Richard O'Brien plays the leader of Thieves Guild in this. And he got, he understood his role was to be as campy as possible in order to make this not seem really, really, like that whole sequence not seem super gross. And he's amazing. I just, I, I remember Jeremy Irons, like, because he's, I'm, you know, he's just working himself into a fury and stuttering and all that. But Richard O'Brien is just so incredibly perfectly sleazy. I just want to thank him. I, I'm glad that you mentioned him because I, like, I've, I've seen Rocky Horror, I think, once. It, it hasn't perhaps stuck with me in the way that, that like, I know that it, there's a whole there's a whole thing about it, and that's fine. Um, I So I mostly remember him from his role in the movie Ever After, um, mm. a movie that my wife and I have a lot of affection for, because he's in a movie that I have, like, otherwise, like, no real complaints about. I think it's pretty, pretty well made. <laughs> Richard O'Brien shows up as this just like side villain who just wants to perv on Drew Barrymore and it just it it it's a it strikes an incredibly sour note in what is otherwise a very sweet film and i've always i'm glad to know that he had that there's more to him as a thing because that face which is very distinctive and like you recognize yeah. it instantly i just have that one association with it and as soon as i saw him in this movie i was like oh this fucking guy Right, but but the thing is, he's so great as this fucking guy. Like in this oh, film, oh yeah, no, for sure. Like when he appears on the screen, like everything ticks up. Like he gets better performances out of Justin, of Zo- out of um, Zoe McClellan, who plays the young apprentice mage character, um, Marina. It, it, he just makes all of these characters like. Boing, pop on the screen and feel like, oh, I care for a, the amount of time he's on the screen. But it's not long. He's in one scene, um, basically. And, you know, he's just the keeper of the MacGuffin. But he's so good and so slimy and so cheesy. Like, he is he's in a Flash Gordon movie while they're making a Dungeons and Dragons movie, like his character would fit perfectly in the 1980 Flash Gordon. I keep calling it Dungeons and Dragons because that's the name that they chose. This has no canonical lore. It doesn't have any, even any devices or magic or anything. It doesn't even, uh, it does have a dungeon and it does have a dragon. So it's, I mean, it's technically correct. I definitely noticed that they took very good pains to make sure that there was a dungeon and a dragon in the very first scene of the movie. Yes. So you know, in it case you a, didn't see the title card, what this movie contains. Right, because the movie starts with a dragon in a dungeon. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the, uh, I, again, I don't want to crap on this, the time frame and all this, but it has incredibly terrible effects, even for the time. You mentioned the uh, you mentioned how much, how little this actually has to do with D anD D. Like one of the most notable things for me about it was seeing the Beholder. Except that the 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 effects on the Beholder suck absolute shit. It is probably one of the worst looking Beholders I've ever seen. The Beholders in Doom look better. Yeah, like in the original Doom. Like <laughs> yeah, it's this has nothing to do with Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, it's a marketing ploy. For, I mean, even if this may have been like the director, there's some talk about this, whether some of this is based on the director's home 
game, um, which is fine, but it's filed off. You, you've paid for the trademark and then filed off everything about Dungeons and Dragons to make a generic fantasy film that um, isn't as good as Crawl. I mean, thank, thank you for bringing up Crawl because when I talked about how this movie, and I spent a lot of this segment talking about how much of this movie is just fantasy Star Wars, like, Crawl exists. Crawl already exists. Why, like, why try and do this when Crawl exists? And Crawl is cool. Crawl rules. I mean, it's a it's a strange film. The performances are just as all over the place as this, except they seem coherently lost, as opposed to like Marlon Wayans coming in from a 1930s, you know, blackface comedy in this. I mean, it's just and and. And the guy's playing Damodar, the 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 uh, Vader Vader one stand in. Yeah, well, he gets clearly killed in this movie. He gets thrown off the top of a tower. But they made two direct-to-video sequels where he is the only character from the movie to be in either of them. It it would be like if you threw the Emperor down the center of a Death Star and then brought him back. <laughs> I'm not going to do a Tom Hardy impression. I'm just going to say that's bait and uh, move on. Um, there is nothing about this film that said, I want to see more of anything related to this. Unless they gave Richard Bryan, Richard O'Brien, like a, uh, uh, a thieves guild, um, uh, like a collect, like doing like a, a compilation of shorts kind of TV show where he's like the crypt keeper kind of character where he's like, oh, well, you know, let me tell you the story of this young thief. And they do like a little short, you know, 10 or 15 minutes or whatever, like an anthology kind of thing. Like if he was doing like creep show and it was him doing like thief show. Uh, yeah, that, I just came up with that. Um, it, it, it's not <laughs> patent good. pending. Yeah. Yeah. Patent not applied uh, but that kind of idea like yeah I'd, I'd watch that but do i want to see anybody else in this movie no the heroes well, are i mean justin wayland seems like a nice guy and he's trying really hard but he's he picks not up given, staff at the end like the faces that he makes i'm like i don't know what it is that you're doing but you are trying to make a face <laughs> yeah but it he's he's um what would turn out, he turns out in the future, you know, he, this character is kind of a cut rate Nathan Fillion kind of role. Yeah. Like you can, but it's interesting because you can kind of see in like his look is somewhere between Han Solo and Nathan Fillion's and Firefly. Like you can kind of see where that was, where like we were going, like where people were going to take interesting ideas of roguish characters and tell interesting stories in a fantasy, you know, sci-fi fantasy way. This, this just wasn't it. And it, and it didn't make back its budget, let alone its marketing budget. Um, it was a, it was a Titanic bomb and it deserved all of it. So. Yeah. I, I think that for me, the parts like your your Damodars, your uh, Jeremy Irons, your Richard O'Briens, like when the when the movie actually is not so much the the younger 
Star Wars slash prequels type stuff when it is actually more leaning on like the older fantasy movie type of stuff like like in the intro like just the opening narration stuff yeah. like when I feel those vibes I'm like you know if they had done the movie out of just this if they had just straight up made uh, an 80s fantasy movie I think as a throwback I think I probably this would have been a lot more like I would have been into it a lot more uh but you would have had to have gotten rid of like at least three or four main cast members in order to achieve that I think well yeah and, and you mentioned and I, I I know we've we've talked more than this movie deserves, but you did mention one thing, which was the super misogynist, racist dwarf who was is played by an actor who is well over six feet tall. And in most of all of the shots, he's either on his knees or squatting because they couldn't afford doubles or any of that. So he's just physically uncomfortable the entire movie. And everything about it is just like the worst stereotypes and terrible humor, and uh, and it's it's really offensive. I mean, he and he and Marlin are are at least Marlin dies until. How, okay, what do you make of the ending with Marlin Wayans? <laughs> that was my pause. My pause was, how am I going to shape this? Because they put the eye of the dragon ruby, which was the the MacGuffin. On his grave, because he dies, thankfully, he gets thrown, he gets, does he get stabbed and then thrown off a cliff? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, like he's dying and then they throw him off cliff just to make sure. Or the bad guy literally like throws him off the tower of a castle. Um, so they're at his grave and they put this on and, and lights start shining everywhere and his name disappears off the grave. And then the group gets like teleported away as if they were going to get a sequel or something. But if you, there is no way that anyone that watched that movie thinks that starting with like bringing Marlon Wayans back is going, is like how to sell this sequel. Um, I, I, I will give, uh, not, I've been crapping on Marlon Wayans. His performance, whether his choice or not, is appalling. But I got to give him credit because he was flying back and forth. While he was making this film, he was also making Requiem for a Dream simultaneously. <laughs> so <laughs> I did not know that. Jesus Christ! <laughs> if it's if he overdoes the G shucks comedy stuff as a relief from making Requiem for a Dream, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, as like a, if this was his therapy, <laughs> he had to do it this way for therapy reasons. I understand. Whew. I can't like the tonal shift between those two films is tremendous. You know what? I, I I'm gonna have to say, you know what, Marlon Wayans, you're in a tough spot, and uh, that's 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 a rough one. That's a that's a that's a fantastic uh, way for us to uh, end this conversation on a movie that, uh, you, yeah, you probably shouldn't see uh, unless you have like the most uh, morbid of curiosities. Um, but a movie that you might potentially feel different about uh, is our next movie, which is uh, 2023's uh, Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves. The 
2014 or so, see the launch of a new version of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, and, and there's renewed interest. And of course, with uh, various, you know, video streaming type things and podcasts, you've got your adventure zones, you've got your critical role, a whole bunch of other, you know, it's, it's much more, you know, in, in contrast to the 90s where you talked about it, like not really having a lot of cultural cachet or anything. Uh, it feels like the last, you know, I guess nine-ish years we've been seeing a lot more D&D and this uh, has sort of culminated in the interest and production in uh, this our second movie for today's episode which is 2023's Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves. Um, knowing not having seen the 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 2000 movie uh, at the time but knowing that it was bad and also the things by this point I had actually started getting into D&D I wasn't when the first movie came out. I was approaching this movie, I suppose, with an amount of trepidation because not only was the first movie bad, but also like the things that I like about D&D, the things that I connect with about D&D don't necessarily translate into a movie um, or aren't obvious what would translate into a movie. Because, of course, it's for for me, what I like about it is the... um, you know, is the social aspect, the gathering with friends. Uh, and yeah, sometimes we do fantasy stuff, but sometimes we also do like, you could do that in, you know, any number of potential settings. Uh, and so my question for coming into this movie was like, what do you get by making a new fantasy movie and calling it Dungeons and Dragons other than attracting the uh, the attention of, you know, the IP attention of people who know what that is and are going to go see it. Um, what was your, like, what was your sort of impressions leading up to this, the release of this movie? Like, what did, what were you thinking? Like, do you think, did you have no expectations? Did you, you know, think that there was a chance it could be good? Um, no, I had incredibly low expectations. Um, between the eighties cartoon, the 2000 movie, uh, just, the idea of translating something that is, yes, it has lore, but it's not like the Lord of the Rings. It's not, it's, it is about generating a story at a table. It's not about, there's been a story written and, you know, you're adapting it and doing all those things. So I had pretty low expectations just because I didn't think, I didn't think that would, it would be good. I just didn't think they would they would capture that the important part um, of Dungeons and Dragons, which is not the it's not even the resulting story. It's the silliness and the and the goofiness and the the taking things way too seriously when they shouldn't be taken seriously and all of those things that happen at the table. I, I gave it no chance almost. I mean, I, like my expectations were it's it's going to be like the 2000 movie with better effects. Um, and all the teasers made me feel that way because the teasers were highlighting the CGI, not highlighting anything about the characters or the feel of the film. It was just like, look at these cool action sequences. I, I don't. I think they should have played up the relationship, the character relationships more in the marketing to make it like to kind of sell it to the Guardians of the Galaxy kind of crowd. The lighthearted silly tone is what i I think makes this movie work but also you're right there is some there are definitely some like a lot of the humor feels very like whedon marvel-esque uh 
like in, 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 or at least some of it does in like when they say when the tiefling says nice save or uh or when they ask about why can you only ask five questions that seems arbitrary uh it's like it's it's never fully making fun of D, but it is sort of like kind of poking a gentle fun at itself i guess in a way that felt like marvel movies have done a lot lately yeah except i think it does one thing very differently from the marvel films in that most of the humor and most of the there's so many little references and little moments that are very um geared toward the D player like the, there's basically unlike the last film this one actually incorporates a lot of lore even when it changes stuff it's still incorporating it um, it's incorporating a lot of stereotypical, like the big monsters, like the cool monsters that are D&D specific as opposed to fantasy specific. Um, I think it did a good job with that kind of stuff. And uh, it acknowledges the audience without breaking the fourth wall. But it, it like, there's so many times where they're like, you're going to get this because you, uh, you, you're a nerd. <laughs> like you, you, you're going to get this reference or find this hilarious because X, Y, or Z. And, and so it's much more in conversation with the audience because of what it's trying to do. But, but let's back up and kind of give people a little overview of the film and yeah, see where we're see, go for there. So the movie starts with, uh, with Chris Pine, uh, who plays Edgin, uh, our main thief, and uh, Michelle Rodriguez playing uh, Holga, who is a barbarian. They are in prison, um, and they are specifically going to their uh, their uh, bail hearing, uh, <clears throat> where they're going to try and convince the people to let them out early. Um, he goes to tell his life's his his. his basically gives his backstory of how he ended up in prison um, with regular asides to wishing that uh, one that a missing counselor by the name of Jonathan would be there because he thought he would be really receptive to the story um, that I want to specifically mention this part because again, it's one of my favorite parts in the movie uh, when Jonathan finally does show up after he's given this emotional you know, story about how he used to be a harper doing nice things for no money, uh, had a wife, had a, had a daughter and the, how the, the thin red wizards came and killed his wife. And, uh, he turned to a life of thievery in the process. But after doing all of these things, uh, the missing counselor, Jonathan shows up, uh, and you see that he is a giant bird man. And Chris Pine him and uh, Michelle Rodriguez grab the Birdman, throw him out the window, and make their escape out of prison, even though their bail had been approved. And so now they're going to go off and, uh, you know, ba- basically get back their crew together to try and get his daughter back. I guess we can go through some of the the other details, but that's sort of the big thing is that uh, they're going to go try and basically steal back what was taken from them. How's that? Yeah, I think that works. It's a, it's weird because it's, it's an origin story movie that isn't really concerned with anybody's origin. It doesn't, I like the fact that it's a movie that doesn't explain itself. Like Jonathan, nobody says that he is an Aarakocra, which is the, the D and D creature name. They're like, we don't need, the audience doesn't need that. They need, he's a flying bird man. 
Yeah. The D&D players will be like, ah, he's an Eric Hooker. I totally get this. But that scene wouldn't work because they can't carry people and, you know, like whatever. That's the point. It's filled with those things. Like one of the counselors is a dragonborn. You don't need to know it's a dragonborn. They never mention dragonborn in the film. They're just there. There are people that they're, you know, humanoids that look like dragons. You you don't need to explain that to an audi- to any audience member. They're gonna be like, oh, that's just like an alien in Star Wars. Like that's a ch- that's a Wookiee, right? Like who? That's what they're called. Cool, but it's big hairy guy. Like we don't care that it's you know it's the name didn't matter. Um, and they do. I love that they carry that through the film. There is you see this weird creature that's hunting them at one point, and and one of the you know, unnamed dudes puts an axe, you know, like an unnamed dwarf puts an axe into the creature and it disappears like an illusion. And the creature is actually behind him. Nobody in the audience needs to know that it's a displacer beast, that it can make its image appear up to like 10 feet away from itself and all this stuff because they just show it. There's so much show don't tell in this film and they only tell you what you need to know. Like when they come across uh, the character Doric who is a uh, tiefling, right? Tiefling. Yeah. Tiefling druid. Okay. What are you doing with the elves? And it's just explained like in like one sentence, she's like, well, you know, I got abandoned because humans don't like, you know, us. And, and so the elves took me in and raised me and now I fight for them. There's her whole backstory. Like you don't need to know exactly what a tiefling is. You don't need to know like, uh, the, you know, what they're, where they fit in the D&D, you know, universe. That's all the information you need for that character. Um, and they do that all the time. Like, all of these characters are like, oh, he's a sorcerer. Well, how is he a dis- different from a wizard? Well, they, they show you. And he talks about wild magic. Like, here's the thing. Like, well, sometimes my stuff just goes crazy. And all of that works. And that's all works like his in-game thing. But in the film... That's enough to tell you about Justice Smith's character, Simon. He's a sorcerer. He's kind of incompetent and his magic goes nuts. Like he's, he doesn't really have control over his power. That's all you need to know, right? Like, and I think the difference is, and I think the difference between this specific way that they handle D&D stuff versus the uh, 2000 movie is that the, the 2000 movie also isn't super concerned with like necessarily getting with, with, with like explaining the rules of how things work. It's just that they don't actually use D and D stuff while doing it. Right. Like, like I, I get that for a movie like this to be successful, you can't rely on an audience to uh, understand the minutia of how the game works. Uh, but at least with this movie, they actually do in like in a lot of cases um, manage to like put in details that actually evoke the feeling of, you know, playing D and D. Like I, I, I agree with you. I like the way they handle the backstories because they sound like a lot of backstories of so many characters I've come, uh, I've played with in in different campaigns, right? Uh, or there's uh, when they go on when when Christopher Pike, uh, Christopher Pike, goddamn, when Christopher Pine is giving his backstory at the end, and they're going on the heist to the uh, the Harper's uh, stronghold, there's a shot when they're coming in that's overhead that looks like a D&D map. Or the, yeah. the arena at the end of the movie 
there's moments where like when all the blocks are going up, it looks like a maze that you would see on a D and D map. But like, and so the, the, those moments to me feel like the, like, again, for those who know, it's a nice, it's a nice moment. And then without being distracting for anyone who doesn't already are, isn't already clued in. Yeah. It's really interesting because especially after the other movie, this foregrounds Dungeons and Dragons, but like the, it foregrounds like the stock lore, but just, it doesn't explain it. It just says, this is the way it is. It's like Star Wars. You walk in and you don't know what's a Jedi, what's a, you know, like it just sort of, yeah, this, okay, sure. A Jedi is a dude who fights with a force and okay, whatever. He's got a laser sword. Right. How much more do you need? He's got a laser sword. I love the fact that um, this movie makes bards look incompetent in the best way. Like, because bards suck and and I I hate them as character class, even though I've played them a bunch. They're... I love that, like, Chris Pine is by far the most useless character in the whole... Like, his daughter is more competent than him. Yeah. But he just has hope and faith and gumption and and the way like when he does the big speech like you know this is the big speech and he's like it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if we have a chance i gotta do it my daughter's in there and everybody's like yeah we're all gonna die but let's do it you know and that is the most like D bullshit reason to do something like we keep talking about the details of the film but i think overall the the feeling of what this is trying to do and the way it feels the way it does. This is clearly a group of players around a table and they just never show the players. Yeah. And I don't know if that was smart or not. I'm very torn on that choice. I think that this feels like the other stuff we've talked about where people who have played D&D and know D&D, it's not a mechanical thing so much as it is this replicates the experience of going on a quest, fucking up, going on a different, like, okay, okay, now we got to pivot. Like that's their whole thing is every time they do a quest, they fail. And so they have to pivot to a new thing. Um, and that's, and I think that that is again, just a, like, I guess more esoteric detail of, uh, of the experience of playing D and D that people will recognize and get, uh, I don't necessarily think they need to would need to take the actual step of like, you know, showing the players, quote unquote. The first time I watched this, I was kind of caught up in the romp, enjoying Chris Pine and Michelle Rodriguez clearly having fun. They have amazing chemistry in this film. Yeah. Um, like they feel like best friends have known each other for decades kind of vibe uh, or at least a decade. You know, the, for the life of his daughter, and um, and it, and, it, and it moves, and you're like, oh, this is cool, and and, and they, there's enough introduced to feed you through the the sort of gathering of the forces and all the like, all the tropes. There's enough little kernels of comedy or silly ideas, or like Michelle Rodriguez going and meeting her ex and finding out that she has a thing for halflings. And that was a great moment. I, I, I love that whole, I love that whole bit. I love that whole bit, but like, if you're going to tighten up this movie, you can mention all that and, and give her the like dirty looks 
scene at the end where she's like sizing up this little halfling dude and he looks kind of like overwhelmed and excited at the same time like this is gonna be my death and i'm gonna love it but death um, by snooze too yeah and it but like if you were gonna cut if you were gonna cut the movie and try to tighten it up because on repeated viewings i found that the pacing is that uh, the gathering of the forces like in almost any team movie the gathering of the forces is the uh, like you're just like okay i know what uh, this is a trope we have to go through this but that's where you want to tighten it up and um the when i mentioned the idea of showing the players i immediately thought of like the princess bride which the princess bride uses the mechanic of throwing back to the grandfather and the kid in order to tighten up the gathering of the forces and the time like yeah it's only the good bits right it it cuts out the stuff you don't care about right and like i would have loved at uh like you can almost you could have almost done it with a like two like an introductory scene and a and a like maybe one or two little break-ins I would have loved to them to say like, oh, pardon the clap. I would have loved for them to say, hey, yeah, we know we know what we got to do here, and this part's kind of boring. Like, so like, I would love to be like, oh, uh, uh, DM, can we can we fast forward to the part where like we've gathered the forces? We know this is all just going to be backstory exploration, and we're okay with that. And like jumping forward, like, well for your character, we'll do that. And it would have been hilarious to just like, suddenly we don't have any backstory for Holka, like, cause her player said, I'm a barbarian. I don't like, I don't need love interest and backstory. Like we can mention it, but like, no, like, let's just not play that. And it, it would have been really interesting to have those, that fast forward of this part's boring. Okay. We've got the four, we got the crew together. We're going to take a break now. And, oh, no, no. You know, like, and like have like a pizza moment and, and play like the let's all go to the lobby in the middle of the movie okay. and then like pop back in. That was not something I thought of going into this, but I think you actually have sold me on it. Cause like, how many movies actually try and do the Princess Bride uh, cut back to grandpa? Like, I can't imagine that's a, that's a thing that gets used too often. No. And I think about like Hugh Grant's performance in this, which we have not mentioned. He's the, their former, colleague and he's a con artist and he's doing kind of a Jeremy, the way Jeremy Irons did, like he's worried that he's carrying this film. Like Jeremy Irons knew that like, okay, this movie's shit. I'm going to, I'm going to own my scenes and they'll be like all that are remembered. Hugh Grant, there are times where he's so playing to the camera and not to the people that he's talking to in the room it is very much the DM going on the, ah, ha, 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 let me tell you all of my secrets before I kill you. <laughs> and he's so good at it. This yeah. renaissance of Hugh Grant as the bad guy. And in this, he's the bad guy, but he's, he's the so The bad guy great. who sucks. Like, right. But, but it's great at sucking. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's terrible, terrible human being. A terrible manipulator, but then when he starts stammering out his, but, 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 but Kira, I love you, you know, and you just kind of go, and by the way, that was the worst Hugh Grant ever. If you could, <laughs> see, if, if you could see John's face, like, was that Hugh Grant? Point me, <laughs> he 
I, I don't have a Hugh Grant impression. I've never thought to try one, but his stammering sort of, oh, but I'm the one who truly loves you, obviously. Like, I mean, look, I'm rich, you know, and your father's a scum. <laughs> I loved him once, but he's a scum. We all know it. You know, it's, it's, he's playing so large that he lets all the characters that interact with him get bigger, like play larger. Like Kira, the ch- which is the, um, daughter yeah Ed, edgin's daughter kira she's playing this like over the top child actor kind of performance even though she's quite a good actress it's very clearly on purpose her like running to running into people's arms and like turning her head so she can be seen on camera burying her chest you know her head in their chest and it's just it's just there's enough cheese that hugh grant is throwing out that everybody picks it up and runs with it like the uh, the Red Wizard, his his partner, when she loses it the first time and yells at him, and he's like, "Oh, I'm I'm I did not mean to interrupt. I'm so sorry." You know, he's just like, "Oh," look, and he backs out of the room, and he's kind of obsequious, and she's going from like red to black, and and uh, you know, that's like the big reveal that she's this evil bad guy. Um, if she's camping it up, like we, we talked about camp in the last one, and. This doesn't go as far as as you know O'Brien as Richard O'Brien in the first one. There's no character that over the top, but it's so knowing. Like there's this there's like this uh, wink to the audience almost through the whole film, and like so many of the performances. Like we have not talked about per- perhaps the best performance in this film, which is. Zenk Yendar, Paladin. Rene Jean, is it Rene Jean Page? Is that how you pronounce yeah, it? Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, he, he, he steals the movie easily for me. <clears throat> he is, and the thing is, again, this is a trope. He is the most DM NPC ever. Like yeah. when the DM's like, I'm going to put my guy to go adventuring with you. And he can do everything. Like, the, And everyone else is completely incompetent. Yeah, when when Chris Pine is about to be eaten by the dragon, fucking Zenk Yendar flies in slow motion with a he sword in silhouette it. and just fucking <laughs> stabs a giant dragon through the head. It's amazing. Yeah, and it, and it's the most Snyder shot in this film. Like it is, it is straight out of Justice League. Yeah, like it's it's a it's almost a pure silhouette. That all it is is silhouette and metal. Like metal shines, and the and also the dragon. The fat dragon was the best thing. I love the fat dragon so much. He's so perfect. And again, like we're talking about how much fun we like. It's very clear we had, we liked this film, and it's enjoyable. Oh, yeah. I did find on repeated viewing. I wish it was a little tighter, but you. I can't fault a performance. I can't fault the effects were more than good enough. Uh, they're not perfect, but they're more than good enough. The nods to the D&D player, like current players and the history of D&D, they, they have the animated cartoon characters as live action figures in this film. In the when they're they have to go through the tournament in the, you know, at the end. The sun, I wondered, I, I definitely wondered if there was like the the other parties that are in the arena. I was like, those those costuming choices seem different and i wondered if there was a thing behind it so thank you for confirming that it what's funny is the story is 
wrote. I mean, it's really like it's a heist the, movie. It's a heist movie with with a with extra MacGuffin challenges in the parts of it. But it's basically like this is like <laughs> Ocean's Eleven Hundred or whatever. Um, <laughs> I like see, that. See, see what I did there? That's a bad joke. Patent pending. Um, patent pending. Yeah, that's at least better than the joke I made in the first part. So we got off topic. We brought up Zank Yendar and didn't explain why he was so great. He because he, he plays it like where where all of our main group of people are, you know, lovable losers and and completely incompetent in almost everything that they do. Uh, Zank Yendar uh, comes into this movie for. He is, you're right. He's absolutely the DM's NPC that will basically protect the characters from dying. And he plays it completely straight faced and is regularly mocked for his like straight as an arrow. And sometimes that's metaphorical and sometimes that's very literal. He doesn't go around the rock. He walks over top of the rock. Yeah. He has the best exit in yeah. in a film I've seen in years where he's just walking down the beach and they're like, is he going to do it? Like they're, they're like ready to take bets if he's going to walk straight over the rock or walk around it. And when he goes straight over and his shoulders never lose level, like no, so he's, he's walking upstairs. Yeah. Yeah. It, he plays this movie like he has a literal stick up his ass. You just want more of him. But at the same time, you're like this. He's completely insufferable, completely nope. insufferable in the best way. <laughs> if, um, if he was to be you want more of him, but you can't have more of him because if you did, it would suck. Right. He he literally takes them like into the into the underworld where there are like thousands of creatures wanting to kill them into the underdark again. Never explain what that is, and then he gets the MacGuffin back for them. He has a fight with a bunch of dead people, kicks their butt. Then they're still dead, and he fights them again. And then they fight a dragon, and you're just like, and he's the only one that does anything. The rest of them are complete losers. And yeah. um, on that note. Don't be a loser. Watch the movie. Well, on that uh, particularly effusive note, uh, I think that'll probably uh, bring this ep- uh, this episode to a uh, close. Uh, but before we do, of course, we always like to talk about uh, some film recommendations, stuff that we've seen, uh, whether on topic or not. Uh, I don't have any other Dungeons & Dragons related uh, films uh, that I want to talk about, as we previously established. Uh, but a movie that I did recently see that just absolutely blew the pants off of me was uh, I finally saw Ken Russell's The Devils. Uh, a, a Again, just based on a couple of screenshots that I've seen and also people making jokes about the nuns being in Space Jam 2 uh, for like in the background of a shot or something and how weird that was. I really had no context or understanding. I purposefully did not read a plot summary or anything i just once it was uh once i found a uh means of watching it uh of questionable legal uh status uh i i just went in completely blind and holy shit i understand why that movie probably is hard to find and is uh And perhaps a uh, controversial or whatever, but goddamn, that movie just fires on all cylinders for me. I love it so much, and the fact that it's based on like a real thing that happened is even more insane. It is one of the most unapologetic films I've ever seen. Like it is, it does not um, care 
what you think about it or, or whether you're appalled or anything like it, it, if, if, if these transgressions bother you, tough shit. It's just completely unapologetic in how it portrays that story. Um, and it, it it's visually and the performances in that film. I mean, Oliver motherfucking Reed. <laughs> yeah, at arguably the height of his powers. Like Definitely. Bef- before he, he had truly succumbed to the alcohol. Um, just, um, yeah, it, it comes off the screen. Like, you, he, he, it's so physical. You feel his performance watching it. Um, yeah. I, that is a film that I understand why it's not widely available. It's utterly a shame that in this modern era, there is no company willing to take the risk, put it out, understand that it's, you know, people talk about its importance, but they don't want to take the risk. And it's not a goddamn song of the South or something. I mean, it's, it's offensive, but it's offensive to our modern sensibilities more than anything else. We, our society does not prepare us for the devils. (laughs) I, yeah, I, I feel like, I, I feel like the, the, I, the, the only the way the only way I can think of describing it is it is offensive to the church people in my life. Like oh, I'm almost yeah. none of whom I'm sure have seen it, but I'm sure every single one of the church people in my life would watch this and go, "I hate this." But like that, like I, I don't fucking care. This like I, no. it was it was revelatory for me. Yeah, it's to, to, it's a mad. It, I won't say it's a magical film because it's not like. Like, yeah, let's get the crew together and we're going to have popcorn and watch this film. Um, It's not that kind of movie. No. Uh, But it is a it is a revelation to see. And I remember the first time I saw it, I was just like, oh, yeah, yeah. I understand why people talk about this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What what about yourself, sir? Well, I've been in such weird spaces. I mean, with the surgery and stuff both my shape before it and having to have a second emergency surgery afterwards. Um, I haven't been watching a ton of things, but I have watched one thing that I'm going to bring up and it's uh, something that I would love to talk about. Uh, He's an artist. I would love to talk about more uh, detail. Hint, hint is um, Peter Greenaway's Drowning by Numbers is the first of his films to come to 4K. And I fell in love with that film in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, Paid $100 for a VHS tape because that's how much they were back in the day. And um, it never came out on DVD here and hasn't been available in any other format. And now there is a 4K and a Blu-ray available as well as a Blu-ray of several of his other films. And well, I don't think Drowning My Numbers is the best introduction to his work. It's a movie I have loved. The performances, the cinematography, the very, very strange and idiosyncratic uh, concepts that he's playing with. And uh, watching it again and seeing it, it the best version that I've ever seen. So this is not one of his that I've caught on a big screen. Uh, 
just was very moving and powerful. And I forgot how much I really enjoy his work um, because so little of it is available right now. Uh, you can get a, an import copy of The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover on Blu-ray from Australia, I believe, that says it's, it doesn't say it's all region, but it does work on all <laughs> everybody. So if you want to buy that copy, you can get it. And then um, just uh, Drowning by Numbers, The Droughtsman's Contract, and a pairing of The Falls and Z into Knots, so two of his films, uh, those have all come out on Blu-ray this summer. And hopefully that means we will get new versions of some of his other films as well. Um, he's just a, a filmmaker I adore. And I know that in your case, like I don't know if any of his old stuff's been available since you've been a film watcher as an adult. So it's a big deal. I mean, <clears throat> those opportunities are some of my favorite, uh, when we can, you know, get the appropriate accesses to stuff is, uh, is, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, new for everyone else, but anytime I get to, you know, anytime someone hypes up a, a filmmaker of note that I haven't checked out before, it's something I usually tackle as, as Chris will tell you how, how much homework I used to do for this podcast, like joyously, <laughs> uh, with like with that that wasn't a burden it was fun to be like okay yes i am gonna watch you know 30 agnes varda movies <laughs> or whatever yeah um, well down the line if if there are more of this get available um particularly if prospero's books comes out uh i would love for you guys to see that that is his adaptation of the tempest by william mm. shakespeare uh with starring sir john kyoko um as prospero there you go. You don't really need to know more than that, but um, it was when Criterion, when the Criterion Channel launched, that was streaming on the Criterion Channel. So I got to see it in a beautiful print because that was another one that I had on VHS. Um, so that was amazing. So yeah, Greenaway's my favorite filmmaker. Um, somebody I could talk about for hours. I have dozens of books about and by him. I have one that a friend got signed by him for, like it says to Eric from Peter Greenaway. Wow. Um, yeah, I, be, I, 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 I was rather obsessive in the 90s with him. And uh, it seems to have returned. Now the stuff's available. I'm just like, ah, Greenaway's back. Yay. I hope you can hear me rubbing my fingers together. <laughs> uh, I mean, it sounds like what you need, sir, is an outlet uh, to, to, to talk about that in more depth. And, uh, it just so happens uh, that uh, we have a website and a podcast. So yeah, I think I know some guys. You might know someone, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, if you if those films are available, I would probably start with the Drotspins contract for it being the most um, conventional. If he makes a conventional film, that's like the his most conventional, and um, yeah, and the Cook the Thief, but. I'm waiting for I'm waiting for either you or Chris to cover the Cook the Thief in one of these Hooptober kind of horror film things because it is a horrific film. I think I <clears throat> I think I saw some reference to it in passing and looked up like a a plot description or something and uh I mean certainly it sounds wild. Uh 
I'm I would look forward to get it watching it if I get the chance. Everybody should watch Greenaway. That's that's my takeaway. Thank you for uh, inviting me back. And um, I love talking D and D and talking these films. And I'm pleasantly surprised by one. And and um, I will say, D and D two thousand was not as bad as I remembered. But it's still truly, truly terrible. Like, I thought of it was like one of the worst films I've ever seen. It's not that bad. Maybe because I've seen so many worse films since then. But it's a bad film. But uh, D&D 2023 with Chris Pine and Michelle Rodriguez and Zank Yendar and Hugh Grant. Uh, it's a good time. Uh, was happy uh, for you to suggest uh, D&D as a theme because it gave me another excuse to watch it. So, yeah. And, uh, talk to a good friend about it so anytime uh take care of each other everyone thanks for listening uh we'll be back next month with chris uh to talk about uh more horror movies because uh he is him and dan are now in the the depths of uh their hooptober marathon so uh, it's the most wonderful time of the year uh, yeah it's basically christmas around these parts all right catch you later everyone bye